All right. If you'll take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of 1 Corinthians once more. Join me in standing, if you would, out of the reverence for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12 this morning. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us grace to understand. Give us grace to understand the implications of the promise of a resurrection. Give us grace to understand the reality that You, God, keep your word. That you, God, fulfill your promises. And that you, God, are always to be trusted. Make us mindful of this truth as we consider these things. I pray, Father, for all within the sound of my voice, that you would speak truth to each of us. That you, Father, would care for our souls and feed us what we need to have. I pray that you would set me aside, that none would hear me, and that all would hear you, and that in the midst of this day, anything that I say which is not of you would fall to the earth dead and unheard. But everything that is yours, let it bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We live in a culture where we are expected to keep our faith to ourselves. We live in a culture where people want us to believe what we believe. That's fine. You can have your beliefs. But don't share them with anybody. Don't press them on anybody. And whatever you do, do not allow your beliefs to inform your public life or your decisions thereof, especially if you are elected or appointed to some form of office. We do not ever want to see your faith influence your life, the world tells us. Faith and life are distinctly different. Faith and practice are two completely different things. You believe what you want, but you do what you want. Those things are held very loosely in the minds of our culture. And they want us to believe and to act in the same way. And the reality is that many Christians, or many who name the name of Christ, are perfectly willing to comply with that cultural directive. They are perfectly willing to hold their faith very loosely, to have in their mind some sort of ambiguous idea about heaven and hell, a resurrection or not. All of those things are very future, they're very tenuous, they're very questionable. But in real life, and I love that expression, in real life, those things don't matter. In real life, all that matters is that you... Do what you need to do to get what you want or get what you need. Never mind the cost. Never mind the implications. Never mind what happens to anybody else or what you have to do to accomplish your goals. In real life, you are expected to act like the rest of us. 
Paul tells us something very different. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ informs everything about our lives. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes the single most important thing that we need to not only intellectually understand and faithfully lay hold of, but it needs to be the thing that drives and shapes and informs our entire existence. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has real-world implications for how you deal with your finances. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has real-world implications for how you deal with your time management. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has real-world implications for how you deal with morality and how you answer questions about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the formative, definitive anchor upon which everything that we are and everything that we believe is nailed. And that if we do not have a firm grasp of the foundational reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then all of the rest of what we say we are as Christians, it means nothing. In fact, he goes on so far as to say that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not real, and it's not just about it being real, but about it being real to us, both of those things are included in this idea. If the resurrection of Christ is not real, then Christianity has no value whatsoever. It has no impact on your life. You cannot have any hope of heaven. You cannot have any hope of your own resurrection. You cannot have any hope of forgiveness. And honestly, without those things out in front of us, then living life as a Christian is kind of a pointless endeavor. Because you're hobbled by an artificial morality. You understand the logic of the world in this? They don't believe in the resurrection, so why would you live by a moral code that is anchored to a book 4,000 years old that nobody believes anyway? That's their logic. And if the, if the resurrection of Christ is not true, then they're right in their assumptions. Okay? Let's be clear about this. What is at stake for us in talking about the resurrection of Jesus is the entire structure of Christian faith, is the entire structure of what our lives are or are not, is the entire structure of not only our future hope, but our present reality. Because if Christ is not raised, then everything that we have believed about God and forgiveness and life and death is a lie and we need to find something else to do on Sunday mornings. Okay? So I want to take this thought and I want to kind of unpack it with you just a little bit because some of you look slightly worried. (laughs) Almost as if the preacher's lost his mind. I promise you I haven't. So I want to begin with why this really matters. Because the world enters into our thinking far more than it should. And the world enters into our consciousness far more than it should. So I want us to step back from that and form our thinking as to why this matters out of the Scripture. We begin with the problem. You are born dead. Okay? At the core of it, this is the foundational issue that every single one of us must deal with. You are born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you who made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now this matters because apart from having that simple thing resolved, you have no hope of peace in this life. So the very first thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us and that a hope in its implied value to us. Let me stop there for a minute. Let me just attach this so that we know where we're driving to. If Christ is raised, Paul says. Actually, Paul says if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, then 
There is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, there is no resurrection of the dead. Everybody who dies is dead forever. Okay? So what's at stake here is what happens after you die. What's at stake here is your future. Because like it or not, near to it or not, unless Christ tarries, or unless Christ doesn't tarry and comes back sooner than we're expecting, every one of us will taste death. Okay? Unless Christ returns ahead of time, ahead of what we're expecting or seeing or anticipating, we will all die. Death is not reserved only for the poor. Death is not reserved only for the ones who do not have the financial means to do something about it. Death is not just a socioeconomic reality. Death is a reality for all human beings. You will die. I will die. What happens after? What the scripture promises us is a resurrection and eternal life with God the Father. Okay? But all of that is rooted in the fact that Christ's resurrection has been taken as a first fruit. All of that has to grow from Christ's resurrection. And if Christ is not raised, all of that is gone. Okay? So, to carry on with what I was saying. What the resurrection of Christ and our future promise, our future hope gives us first, is peace. Because if we're born dead, and we're born at odds with God, do you know it, or do you not know it? I would contend that we all know it at some level. I would contend that the scripture affirms that we all know it at some level. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about Gentiles doing the works of the law written on their heart. Right? He talks about people doing the things that God himself has pressed on them. And we talk in scripture also about our consciences defending or accusing us. We know that there's a problem. We understand that there is something wrong with our behavior. We may not fully understand it. We may not be able to articulate it in the most exacting theological terms. But we know there's a problem between us and God. And, and part of what creates the vehemence in the culture about our living our faith out is the fact that they have the awareness of a conscience pressing on them at some level. And when we speak to them of truth, it ignites that conscience. And they don't like that. They don't like being reminded that their lives are going to be judged by a holy God. They don't like being reminded that there is a cost to their behavior. They don't like being reminded that the things that they want to do are not necessarily the best things for their eternal condition. That bothers them. That offends them. They would rather just go on believing the delusion that they are free to do as they want, free to live how they choose, free to be whoever they want to be at any given moment. But if we're born spiritually dead, that awareness is in us in some capacity. And it leaves us unsettled. It leaves us adrift. It leaves us constantly a little angry, Constantly a little unhappy, constantly a little seeking for something else to fill the void. Constantly looking for something that's going to help us to get along and feel better. We are born spiritually dead, and we are born spiritually helpless. In other words, those problems that are intrinsic in us, we can't do anything about. And what makes it even stranger and more dangerous is that we are also born spiritually apathetic. If I were to explain this in, in simple terms, using common English that, that a five-year-old could understand, to most people out in the world, they would look at me and say, I don't really care what you're talking about. How about them chiefs? It's baseball season now. I should be talking about the Royals, right? <laughs> 
something. How about the little ball we're going to chase this week? Right? They're apathetic about the spiritual condition. And again, Paul speaks to this. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10, Paul says this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what does Paul say? He says, no one seeks God. No one is a good person. No one deserves heaven. No one lives in hell enough here that they've done their bit. I've seen that quote. I've done my time in hell. I can go to heaven because I've had a hard life. No. No one does anything in any capacity that is going to make them fit for God's presence. And more than that, they don't care about it at all. Nobody is seeking after God. You say, well, how is anybody saved? Well, it's because God is seeking after us. Amen. God is the initiator of salvation. It is God who is seeking His own children, who is calling His own children, who is not only calling us, but imparting to us the faith to believe the things that we must believe in order to be saved. It is God's work to save His people. It is God's power to do it. And the curse of being away from our God is something that the Scripture says is written on the walls of our heart. But the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ takes that curse out of the way. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul puts this in the most dynamic terms imaginable. Starting at verse 11. He says, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So what does Paul tell us? He tells us that there was a, a, a writ against you, a, a bill of your offenses, the, the handwriting of the law written against you. And God has taken all of that out of the way, having nailed it to the cross of Christ. Hear me. If you are found in Christ, you will never be punished for your sin. It has been punished in the death of Christ forever and completely. It is absolved. It is taken out of the way. You will never be punished for your sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I go, oh, <laughs> thank you. There is such peace in that knowledge. Amen. There is such peace in the knowledge that no matter what happens, because Christ's death and Christ's resurrection are real. Notice how Paul attaches these things. Notice what he says here. He talks about it has been taken away. We have been buried with Christ and we have been raised with Him in the same way of His resurrection. And because of that, all of the things that were against us have been settled in Christ. 
They have been fully punished in His death, burial, and resurrection. And that entire function means that His resurrection is something we need to fix our attention on because it is the proof of God's accepting of His sacrifice. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 and 25 say, Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So just stop for a minute and think about what abandoning the resurrection of Christ does to your peace about the fact that your sins have been forgiven. If Christ was raised because of your justification, Christ was raised as evidence that God has said, I will count His death as if it belonged to you. I will count His righteousness as if it belonged to you. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. This is the the definition of justification scripturally. It is God taking our sin and giving them to Christ, counting them to His credit, punishing our sin on the cross, and taking the full and complete obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ and applying it to us. Now that's a huge stretch. That is a monstrous thing to believe. Amen? But God says, I understand this is hard for you to believe, so I'm going to give you evidence of the fact that I have accepted His death in your place. I'm going to give you evidence of the fact that I have counted you as justified, and the evidence is going to be irrefutable. I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead. But if you take the the resurrection of Christ, and you make it something that you can negotiate away so that somebody else is not uncomfortable about this very strange thing, then you sacrifice your peace. In fact, if you jettison the resurrection of Christ, in truth, you sacrifice your hope. Because the resurrection of Christ is the root and the foundation and the cause of our hope that gives us peace. Our hope in the future life gives us peace because we know that God has accepted Christ's death. It is given to us through Christ who always lives to make intercession for us. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So God's peace comes to us through Christ Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that that is mediated through Christ not only once, but forever, because He always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 23. It says, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Speaking about the Old Testament laws and the ways they did things. But He, speaking about Jesus, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So we begin at the point of understanding that the resurrection of Christ is crucial to the peace that we have with God, the peace that we have in this life, and the peace that allows us to actually live with some kind of hope. But it also begins to form and shape our character. Because we are not living in this life in a vacuum. Okay? What is the purpose of this life? To glorify God, right? What is the aim of this life, the end of this life? To glorify Him forever, to be with Him forever, right? And so in the interim, this place where we live and this life that we live is designed by God to shape us into the likeness of Christ so that we might be fit for His presence to be with Him forever. 
God calls us to live out the power of the resurrection right here and right now so that His resurrection and His life and His commands and His instruction actually form our character. It shapes us into His likeness. Now don't lose heart if you look at your life and you say, you know what, I am so far off the mark, I sometimes wonder if I'm even saved. We all can be in that place sometimes. Okay? You're not saved by your works of righteousness. The fact that you get up every day and you keep striving after it, that's a pretty good indication that God has done a work in you and is still doing a work in you. All right? You're not ever going to get there this side of glory. The promise is you're going to eventually get there. But that knowledge held out there in front of us, that we are going to be raised, that we are going to be with God forever, begins to, to percolate through our consciousness and begins to percolate through our understanding so that who God is and how God thinks and what God loves begins to form and shape our character. If you're going to spend eternity in the presence of God, does it not stand to reason that you should want to think like He thinks and, and do the things that He does since if that's where you're going to be forever, you don't really want to not fit in? that makes sense? It's, it's a hard thing to try and get your head around if, if you're not at least partially there. Because in the end, understand that the experience of heaven and the experience of hell are quantitatively the same experience. They are the unfiltered presence of God. Those in heaven are experiencing God's love and experiencing His mercy and experiencing His grace and have been prepared to experience His mercy and grace and love. Those who are in hell are experiencing God's wrath unfiltered and have been prepared for their own destruction, for their eternal destruction, for the experience of God's wrath with bodies that will never be consumed although God's wrath is so terrible it could consume them. Do you understand? If we're going to be with Him in heaven forever, we absolutely want to be prepared to be with Him forever. Where does that preparation take place? Where does it at least begin to take place? Right here, right now, in this life. Right here, right now, in this life, God is forming in you the character of Christ. Now there's a couple other things that are going on at the same time that He's forming in you the character of Christ in order to prepare you to be with Him. He is also forming in you the character of Christ so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren and receive the glory of being the firstborn among many brethren. We're glorifying Him by looking like Him, by being conformed to His image. But the thing that I want to think with you about in the context of this conversation this morning is the fact that if we're going to be with Him forever, who He is and how He thinks and what He does should shape and inform the way that we live our lives. Because there aren't going to be any barriers when we get there. There's not going to be any place to hide what's going on inside of you. All of that will be laid bare. All of that will be made open. So this life is where we wrestle that out. This life is where we put on Christ. This life is where we struggle those struggles and fight those fights and do those things that have to be done to shape our character into the likeness of Christ. That means that those who say to us, keep your religion out of your public life, are essentially saying to us, please make your religion a lie. Amen? If, if I'm not going to permit you to live out what you say you believe, 
then what I'm asking you to do is to profess something that you do not believe by your actions or telling you that the thing that you believe is not worth living for. In other words, make what you say a lie. As long as it's a lie, we're okay with it. Like I said, believe what you want to believe. Just don't live it. Just don't act in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Just don't do something that that stirs my conscience, that makes that little voice inside of me that I can't shut up get after me. Just don't do any of those things, and we'll get along just fine. They want us to become liars. They want us to live without any power or without any purpose or without any real hope. They want us to live in such a way that everything we do is contrary to the God that we say we serve. Now, it's bad when the world tells us to live a lie. It's appalling when Christians buy into that. Or, let me phrase that a little differently. It's appalling when people who name the name of Christ buy into that. Right? When somebody who will say to me, I'm a Christian, but I choose to keep my faith very private. I don't want to disturb anybody with the things that I believe. I find that worrisome. I find that troubling. Because in the end, what we're actually doing is giving permission to ourselves to play fast and loose with the things that God says. For instance... If I know that this person I'm speaking to is a firm believer in a woman's right to murder her baby, and I don't happen to agree with that, but I don't want to offend her, so I'm not going to talk about it, or I'm going to just allow her to believe what she wants to believe and and maybe even agree with her, but I'll go around behind her back and go, man, I don't think she's right. I may make her feel more comfortable being around me, but I have no power in the gospel whatsoever. The same thing is true when we talk about sexuality, gender identity. When we talk about basic morality, right? How many people do you know who have absolutely no trouble whatsoever cheating on their taxes? Right? Why? Well, because the government takes too much of it anyway. You can justify it all you want. But Jesus said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, to honor the king, to obey the laws of the land in which you live. You don't like the tax structure, then work within the law to change it. Good luck with that. (laughs) But don't cheat on your taxes, and then go to sleep at night thinking that God's okay with your action. Because he's not. You see, as soon as they want us to say that what we believe doesn't really impact real life, as soon as we agree to do that, then all stops are off. Now, some of you might say to yourselves, well, that's, that's fine on a little thing like your taxes, but I would never, and we'll draw an imaginary line somewhere about something that we would never do. Do you recognize that as soon as you let down the guard on any of it, It's all in play. And any imaginary line that you want to draw to say that this sin is really bad and I would never do it, but this sin is okay and I'll do it if I think I can get away with it. As soon as you begin to draw those lines, what you're confessing is that you do not believe that God cares about any of it. And that, beloved is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. As well as an incredibly foolish thing to do. Because what the scripture affirms is that God cares about all of it. And since He cares about our sins enough to send His Son to die for them, He calls us to care about them enough to fight against them. He calls us to care about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that bought us 
enough to at least engage in the fight, which means that we do not have permission from our God to live as if our religion does not influence and shape our lives. When somebody asks you to live like your religion doesn't matter, they're asking you to deny the Christ who bought you. They're asking you to say that their good opinion of you is more important than God's. But you see, for all of us, there are places that, if we're going to be completely honest, we probably are already of that opinion. Right? Most of us give ourselves a buy on some of our pet sins. Maybe our speech. Right? Ephesians 4 tells us, do not let any corrupt word come out of your mouth. Give no room in your mouth for coarse jesting, right? Dirty jokes, bad language, obscene innuendo. James in chapter 1 tells us that real religion is to visit orphans and widows in their need and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We've been on this verse for a few weeks in men's Bible study on Saturday morning, talking about the implications of what it means to be stained and unstained. Talking about how we're supposed to be fighting against the encroachment of sin. But it also is more than just a dirty mouth. It's also sometimes just a hateful mouth. Sometimes it's about speaking about people with venom. Speaking about people with malice aforethought. Sometimes it's about gossip and slander. Look at Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26. Gives us this, starting at verse 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tailbearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Do you see how the writer of Proverbs gives us this this advancing reality? It starts off with with words and and gossip and slander, the tailbearer's bit going down inside of us and allowing us to delight in that. It's like a tasty little trifle. Ooh, give me the dirt. Give me the good dirt. I want to know what's going on. And as soon as that takes place, what's really going on is that we are engaging in hatred. We're engaging in hateful speech. We're engaging in the destruction of somebody's character. And maybe it's not to anybody but your family. Maybe it's only to your best friend. But the real danger is what it does inside of you. Because the one who speaks in that way hates in their heart, disguises it with their lips. And we have the writer of Proverbs telling us that at some point that will come out. It will be seen. And remember what Jesus said about murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of his blood. So what Jesus does is he connects the way that we talk, the way that we think, the way that we feel about somebody with the commandment against murder. See, what's really at stake in all of this conversation goes deeper than just, are you a nice person? Do you live in a good way? Does the world like you or not? What's really going on is God is driving into the heart of our problem, which is that at the heart of us, we don't like Him. See, the old man hates God. 
The old man hates his ways. The old man hates his truth. The old man wants the old man to be in God's place. And if you're conscious at all, you are aware of the fact that this fight is always raging inside of you. It is always a battle that you have to be in or you will be a casualty. Okay? It's something that you need to be fighting for with everything that you have in you because it is not just about your speech. It's also about your relationships. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 kind of carries forward the idea here. Starting at verse 17, it says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What does he just tell us? If you have a problem with somebody, what do you do? You go to that person and you sort it out. Right? If your neighbor has done something wrong against you, go to him, rebuke him, sort it out. Don't just store it away and hate him. But how many of us, cowards that we are, how many of us would much rather just store it away? Oh, I don't want to go make a problem. That's fine. But you know what you are incapable of? Actually letting it go. So it's going to sit inside your soul and fester. It's going to sit inside your soul and it's going to turn to rot. And what God tells us in Leviticus is, you're going to end up bearing sin because of His sin. Because you didn't do what you should have done to get it out of you. Instead, you made a safe harbor for it. When you won't deal with your problems, when you won't go talk to somebody about something that's going on, it creates a spot inside of you that is a problem for your soul. Verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, how many of us have heard the last part or the first part of that verse? Right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who, who said that? That we might remember he said that. I don't know, was it Jesus? When he was asked about what is the most important commandment, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. But in Leviticus 19, where he took that from, it's around the context of going to sort out your problems before they become toxic and venomous in your soul. In other words, love is rooted in truth. Okay? If you have a problem with your neighbor, you actually have a problem with your neighbor. Pretending that you don't is not only foolish, it's toxic. Go and sort it out. And what Jesus told us is that when you have the courage to resolve your differences, you are actually loving the people in your life. Okay? When you have the courage to go to them and say, you know what, i got a problem with this. You've offended me. You've hurt me. We have a broken agreement. We have a broken covenant. Whatever it might be. You go to your neighbor. You sort it out. That's love. Love says, I love you enough to try and restore this. Because think through the process with me. You all know this. There has been people in your life that have offended you. And instead of dealing with it, you've let it go. And what happens to the relationship? Are they still in your life? Unless they're family, probably not. And sometimes even then. Right? When, when we won't deal with things, those relationships, they dry up and they die. That's not love. But that's what the world wants us to do. 
And they want us to do it because they want us to deny that God has any concern about the way that we live our life. Because ultimately, when we will not live consistently with his commands at all, when we just say, you know what, I don't care, I'm going to fit into the world, I want the world to like me because this is where I live, and I'm not there yet, so I don't really care too much about there because now I'm here. When we live that way, what we're really confessing is that what we think we have for salvation is nothing. It's a lie. John chapter 14, verse 21, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, I'll say that again, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me. And He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. Jesus said, don't tell me that you love me if you will not obey me. The world says, don't obey him. Don't do anything that he tells you to do. You can believe what you want to believe, but keep it to yourself. Don't obey him. Jesus says, if you don't obey me, you don't really love me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24 says, He who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, I understand that all of this to this point is fairly uncomfortable. And I apologize for that. For the discomfort, not for the truth. But there's more that is a lot better. Because believing in the resurrection of Christ and holding that steadfastly before us is also our greatest source of joy. Look at me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This may be a perspective that some of you have never really considered about Jesus. But I want you to see this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And who are the witnesses that are in reference here? Everybody in chapter 11. It's the saints who've gone on before. It's those who have run the race and finished the race and are in heaven. They are no longer with us, but they are going to be with us again. Or we will be with them, to put it more accurately. It is the witness of heaven. It is the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, because of chapter 11, because of all this, because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you ever wonder from a human perspective how Jesus endured what he endured? A lot of times you'll have somebody say, very well-meaning, but very inaccurate, That Jesus endured the pain of the cross because he loved you so much that he couldn't stand the thought of heaven without you in it. It sounds really nice, but it's not truth. Yes, Jesus loved you enough to die for your sins and to make you his own. That he might be glorified in you and that he might receive the full reward of his suffering. But what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that it was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross. That that he despised its shame. And the, the Hebrew literal there says he shamed the shamefulness of it. In other words, he, he poured out his own contempt on the ugliness of the cross by saying what is in front of me is better than anything you can do to me today. And what was in front of him was bringing joy and glory to the Father. 
Beloved, I, I lay before you the very simple proposition that you have the exact same opportunity. That looking forward to the hope of heaven and the joy of your Father will give you the strength to have joy today. Because I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you at all. Living in obedience to His commands can make this life very difficult. It will probably cost you friends. It will mean that you, you probably make some sacrifices in the things that you do and don't do. It will probably cost you advancement in the world. We, we were talking yesterday at Bible study. One of the men was telling us about his kids who were involved in a traveling sports team that often plays on Sundays. And, and we were discussing at that point the reality of honoring the Sabbath. And he said, you know, I just feel like we shouldn't be doing that. Well, if you make that decision, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost them. It's, it's going to be a painful decision in their lives and in yours. And you guys need to all be on board with this. Because the reality is, is that if you set yourself to obey God, when God presses something on your heart and says, this is what I want you to do, if you're going to obey Him, it's going to cost you here. Always. That is an always true statement. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's why He told the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have Give the money to the poor and come and follow me. Did Jesus want us all to walk around in rags and not have anything? No. Why did he tell him that? Because that was his God. Right? I promise you, if you're seeking to obey God and seeking to follow after Christ, the place where you're going to find God consistently putting his finger in the middle of your stuff is going to be in the place that it hurts the most. Why? Because those are the things that are endangering your walk. Those are the things that you love too much. The things that you are clinging to too fiercely. God tells us we are to cling to Him. For the joy that is set before us. Despise the cross. Shame its shame. Seek to be seated at the Father's feet. Seek to be with Him. Seek to find in Him everything that you need. And understand that the promise is, is that you do not walk this path alone and you do not walk this path towards an uncertain future. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Right? We are not going to an uncertain place. We are not going to an emptiness. We are not going to some place where you are not known and loved by the God who saved you and the Christ who bought you with His own blood. You are going to be in the presence of the One who gave Himself for you and that should fill you with joy no matter what it costs you now because Jesus has been raised. He couldn't make that promise if His resurrection was a lie. He couldn't make that promise if there was no truth in the fact that He could come back and take you to be with Him. Fundamentally, to deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny His truthfulness. To say to Him, you know what? I don't believe that you can keep your promises. I don't believe that you're honest. I don't believe that you're capable. Beloved, there is joy in holding fast to the truth of the resurrection of Christ. There is joy in this life for what God gives to us. And more than that, the hope of the life to come is the power to live this out. You might be staring at a life right now that up until this point has been filled with chaos and ruin and you feel like, you know what, I have gotten this wrong from start to finish. It's probably not as bad as all that. But you might feel like it is. The truth of the matter is, the closer you get to Christ, the more that seems the truth. Amen. The closer you are to the light, the more you see the spots, the more you see the stains, the more you see the blemishes. I was talking to Dan just this week, and he was telling me that people say they're, they're amazed at how he is enduring the things that he's enduring and the pain and, 
how he's consistently aiming them to God and they just can't believe that anybody could do that. And he said, I, I just see unfaithfulness in me. <laughs> All I see is the spots. All I see is unfaithfulness. All I see is just how, how weak and how much I've messed this up. Beloved, the truth of the matter is the more we see him, the more we see our own sin, but that's okay because he's taken it away. He's removed it. He paid for it. You will not be punished for it. So find in this hope. Find in this the power to face what you're facing today. Because in the end, the resurrection of Christ is the declaration of God's power to do everything that He promised to do. Again, look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're almost done. Romans chapter 1 and verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us. I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Corinthians. (laughs) It's a great passage, but it's not the one I was aiming at. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, it is the resurrection of the dead, Christ in particular, It is the declaration of God's power to do everything that he promised he would ever do. Did he promise he would perfect you? Yes, he did. How do you have a guarantee that he can and that he will? Because Christ is raised. Did he promise that he would take away all of your sin? Yes, he did. How do you have a guarantee that he will? Because Christ is raised. Did he promise that he would comfort you in all of your affliction? Yes, he did. How do you have a guarantee that he will? Because Christ is raised. At the bottom of everything that we believe and everything that we know, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is our guarantee of God's ability to say yes and amen. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that in him all of the promises of God are yes. That in Jesus, all of the promises of God are amen. They are what gives us our access to Him. It is His promise. It is His power. And that same power is promised to us when we are raised in His likeness. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's that forward-thinking, next-life, new-life reality. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, To the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I behold you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You will finally and completely be conformed to his image and to his likeness when we all are raised from the dead.
And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ which anchors that hope. But beloved, it is not simply some sort of esoteric, ephemeral idea that just floats out there and says, oh, that's kind of nice, Jesus was raised. It is the anchor and the substance of everything that we are as Christians. We cannot sacrifice the resurrection of Christ and be Christian. And we cannot deny it with our lives and to be Christian. We must live and walk as if the resurrection of Christ is the reality that propels us, the reality that calls us, the reality that shapes us, because that is exactly what it is. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace to see truth. And I pray, Father, that clumsy and awkward though the delivery is, that the truth would take root. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of this day, you would show yourself mighty to each of us, that you would lift our eyes towards heaven and cause us to behold your glory in a way that transforms us. God, let us be conformed to the image of Christ and remind us that over all that we do, that it is your working in us that is our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.